Well, welcome and uh, good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us tonight. Um, and welcome to this year's Safraz Lecture. The Safraz Lectures happen every year, thanks to the continuing generosity of Amir Safraz, one of the UK's leading business innovators. So I should start by expressing the college's thanks to him for his continuing support. The lectures look at different aspects of the challenges facing Pakistan. Those challenges were set out with vivid clarity by our speaker last year, the great Asma Jahangir, human rights lawyer, activist, conscience of the nation. Her tragic death just eight months ago at the age of 66 robbed Pakistan and the world of one of its great advocates. We remember her with love and respect. My own family has branches in Pakistan. My father-in-law is a British Pakistani and my wife was born and brought up in Karachi and we collectively as a family spent four very happy years living and working in the capital, Islamabad, in the 1990s. So it's a special pleasure to be able to introduce tonight's speaker. But of course, Pervez Hoodboy needs very little introduction. His reputation was made as a nuclear physicist, specializing, if I'm right, um, in quantum field theory, particle phenomenology, and supersymmetry in the area of particle physics. He received his PhD from MIT, worked at the International Center for Theoretical Physics in Trieste, and then moved to join the Kaidiazm University in Pakistan. And Kaidiazm, for those of you new to Pakistan, means the father of the nation. In other words, the nation's founder and first president, Muhammad Ali Jinnah. Pakistan's own nuclear program was already advanced. And as you will all know, both India and Pakistan are now assessed to have very credible nuclear weapons programs. After 30 years at Kaidiazm, he then moved to Lahore, where he now works as the Zora and ZZ Ahmed Foundation Distinguished Professor at the Foreman Christian College. But Professor Hoodboy is probably more widely known for his public commentary on some of the biggest issues facing Pakistan and South Asia. Nuclear issues, of course, but also attitudes to science, religious orthodoxy, the Pakistan military, and human rights, as well as the Pakistani education system. His views are widely respected around the world and in Pakistan, and he seems able to express thoughts that many in Pakistan find difficult to articulate in public. Tonight, he will offer us thoughts on the current political situation in Pakistan. The country faces apparently insuperable problems, economic crisis, uh, see for example last week's bid to the IMF for a bailout, arguably excessive obligation to China, linked to the need to go to the IMF, ever more difficult relations with the United States, and an education system which continues to undershoot expectations. And yet, and yet, a confident new prime minister, bringing a reputation for dynamism and piety, as well as for bowling out opponents and winning tournaments, has been elected. So we are at a fascinating juncture, and I'm delighted to invite onto stage Professor Hoodboy.
Thank you very much, Sir Tim Hitchens. I am delighted to be here at the invitation of Wolfson College to speak about the future of Pakistan and the challenges that it, it faces. This is a marvelous opportunity, I think, because we can be candid. And I hope that in the question and answer session, people will ask what they, whatever they wish to, and I shall try to answer as best as I can. But before venturing into the future of Pakistan, I want to very briefly begin with the present. As we all know, Pakistan has a new government with a new leader, Imran Khan, and it's now been two months. Imran Khan came to power on the promise that he would create a new country, Naya Pakistan. While Imran Khan's victory, his becoming prime minister, owes quite squarely to the Pakistan army and the intelligence services, he does have many supporters, and these are very well-meaning supporters who actually believe that somehow the old order has been displaced and there is a new dispensation around the corner. Well, even his very well-motivated supporters, those who are perfectly honest and mean well for Pakistan and believe that Imran Khan was very sincere, nevertheless, they too do not see a new country emerging but the more charitable ones say that he needs to be given a little more time. And so they are waiting. On the other hand, I think continuity stares you in the face. The single item agenda was corruption, that the previous government and the one before that were horrendously corrupt, that they would need to be done away with, and that Imran Khan would do it. So that, that was the platform on which he ran, and yet um, it doesn't seem all that good because within his party now, and the ones that he chose to for his party tickets were not the ones who had come out, opened their hearts to him. They were what are called the electables. The electables are those with uh, substantial finances, and... Uh, with finances derived from very dubious sources. And so they are squarely there. You can see them everywhere. It's old faces all around now. But let's see. He came promising a new economic agenda. He would never go to the Americans. He would never go to the IMF. The IMF is poison for Pakistan. And he said, I would rather die than go to the IMF. But today, as we heard from Sir Tim, Pakistan is negotiating the biggest ever bailout from the IMF, roughly $12 billion. Well, we should let that pass as well. But Naya Pakistan was to be a meritocracy where nothing, your race, your sect, 
your other affiliations were not to matter. How good you were was the only thing that was going to matter. And so when I read in the newspapers that an economist from Princeton University by the name of Atif Mia had been appointed to the Economic Advisory Council of the government of Pakistan, and that it was known that this person was an Ahmadi. Ahmadis are, were at one time a part of Islam. They were formally declared as non-Muslim in 1974, after which they have been the target of systematic persecution. Well, I said, my goodness, if he is willing to take on one Ahmadi as a member of anything, but this wasn't really all that much, you know, because this was, he used to be one member of an 18-member advisory council, unpaid, giving free advice, not important by any means, but even that was such a huge step forward. I said, I am going to just forgive him all his sins. <laughs> he has quite a few, by the way, but we'll... <laughs> We shall let that pass as well. Unfortunately, what happened was that as soon as he announced it, the other side, the religiously charged people in Pakistan, immediately said nothing doing. And so there was an immediate back off. It was not even argued that this had been something wrong. In fact, the Minister of Information and the Minister of Human Rights, both of his appointees, in the beginning tried to rationalize this appointment, and yet when the religious pressure mounted, they immediately backtracked. Well, I was not surprised, but uh, I was saddened by this. So what we see is not a new Pakistan or any kind of a revolution, what we see is continuity. And that's because, um, basically, Pakistan is only formally a democracy. In actual fact, it is run by an oligarchy. That oligarchy carries the name of the establishment. Now, the establishment is comprised of people who share core values. These are the people who really call the shots. Most of them are generals and ex-generals, people belonging to the armed forces, but they are also but in the establishment there are also politicians, both who are in government and in opposition. They, there is also the judiciary, lawyers, and people of influence. Now, this oligarchy has been there since the inception of Pakistan. The core values that they share, let me try and enumerate them. They are all centered around India. 
It is about resolving Kashmir in Pakistan's favor, ensuring strategic depth in Pakistan. So should India ever attack Pakistan, that we will have somewhere to go to. This is why we originally supported the Taliban. In fact, Pakistan was the first country that recognized the Taliban government in Kabul in 1996. And it has maintained its, its uh, support for the Taliban in the face of uh, enormous pressures. But it is a core value for Pakistan because it deals squarely with the issue of India. India then comes into our relationship with all our neighbors. It comes into issue with China because China is a natural contender for supremacy in, the, in South Asia. It comes into our relationship with Iran. Iran presently is not considered a friendly country to Pakistan. Once upon a time it was. In fact, I do remember in the 1965 war, I was 15 years old then, we were so thrilled when the war happened mm -hmm. and we had all, we had support everywhere we thought, including Iran. In fact, Pakistani Air Force jets, they sought, they, they, they sought refuge, shelter in Iran. That's where they were parked to be out of the range of Indian jets. But today, because of our closeness with Saudi Arabia and our dislike of India, we are not on good relations with Iran. In fact, um, you, some of you might have read that a few days ago, 14 Iranian soldiers were kidnapped from the Iranian side brought into Pakistan. And this is, by, this is the work of, um, well, um, they, they, we don't know, nobody has said who was responsible, but, but these would be those forces supported by the Pakistani military. And of course, I've mentioned Afghanistan as well. So the point is that the relations with our neighbors is totally, completely determined by India. Now, normally, countries, when they speak of national interest, they have something else in mind. So, for example, when the United States speaks of national interest, it talks about <clears throat> dominating the globe economically, military, militarily, China wants to be the most economically powerful country in the world, and so on and so forth. I have looked at uh, some of the literature that comes out of the National Defense College, and I am unable to find a definition of national interest which has something to do with Pakistan becoming an economic power, exploring space, having good universities, all I find in military thinking is how to get ahead of India by one step. So this oligarchy defines the national interest. It, um, as I said, it's got lots of different kinds of people in it. It's got mostly generals, 
ISI people, politicians, ex-ambassadors, etc. But it is all concentrated upon India. This now makes it very difficult to concentrate upon Pakistan's challenges. And so now, having exhausted my introduction as to who actually runs Pakistan, let me now identify five key crises. The first crisis is a very palpable one. It's that of a bomb, a population bomb. When Pakistan came into existence in 1947, the, the entire population of West Pakistan was 28 million people. East Pakistan, which is now Bangladesh, had 30. It, was, it had a higher population then. But today, it's been reversed. Today, Bangladesh has a smaller population than Pakistan. Pakistan's population is now 220 million and growing by the hour. I grew up in Karachi and I know that you did as well and probably others in here as well. And it was a city of one million people. Hmm. Oh, the streets were empty, there were playgrounds, the air was clean, the buildings were single-story, the houses were big, lots of trees. I cannot recognize that city anymore because it is 22 million people. But now let's, let's, let's get the... Let's, let, let's look towards the future. Okay, so if we take 1947 till... 2018, that's 71 years. If you see the population then and now, that makes out for a doubling period of 25 years. So then just do a little bit of, a little calculation. After the next doubling, after the next 25 years, this 220 million is going to go up to 440 million. Assuming the rate of growth remains the same, Let's make that assumption. Another 25 years, it's 880 million. And another 25 years after that, that's 1.8 billion. Another 25 years, and another 25 years. So four doubling periods later, our population in Pakistan will be that of the entire world's population as it is today. Go another 25 years later to that, and there will not be hands enough, there will not be space enough to stretch out your hands. What this does to the environment, it's catastrophic. The, the pristine beauty of the mountains is gone. The, the, the beaches that used to be the cleanest, that, that I so remember from my childhood, they are now filled because the, the, uh, the refuse, the sewage from Karachi just flows untreated into that. Well, if, even if you treat it, once population grows at this rate, unless it is stopped, 
the consequences are just horrendous to the environment. But, okay, it's not just the aesthetics. Look at what is going to happen to the water. Since 1947, the per capita availability of water has decreased seven times. Well, population increase. Also, that uh, the groundwater which we've been pumping from the aquifers is going down and down. Now, water is going to become a major, major issue politically. In fact, already there are voices within Pakistan saying, it's India which is stealing our water. Now, there was a division of waters under the Indus Waters Treaty, and as a result of that, the rivers were divided between Pakistan and India. That followed an episode in which India had actually cut off water to Pakistan. So this, under the, uh, under the aegis of the World Bank, was negotiated. But now there are claims that India is violating the Indus Waters Treaty. The matter has been taken up with the World Bank. An arbitration committee has been appointed. But there are voices, very strong voices within Pakistan, which are saying that this water shortage is because of what they're doing. They, they've turned off the tap over there, which is, of course, nonsense. All they can do is delay the water coming into Pakistan, and they can choose times which would be disastrous for Pakistani agriculture if they build dams. Now, here is a potential problem that can cause war between the countries. And yet, nobody in government is talking about how this is to be addressed, in particular the population issue. Somehow when it comes to talking about population, uh, people go mum. Why is that? Because they fear the mullah, who says, we must have more people. Without more people, Islam will not be able to conquer the world as it should. And so, no government, I do not blame Imran Khan over here, because Nawaz Sharif, Asif Ali Zardari, Benazir Bhutto, Parvez Musharraf, none of these could, could speak out for family planning. Next, negative education growth. Now, oh, I'm sure there will be. People will say, no, 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 literacy was 8% in 1947. It is now 58% or 68%. Depends on how you count literacy. So why do I make the claim that there has been negative education growth? Because, basically, I get to see students. Uh, actually, Sir Tim, you said I'd been teaching at Qaeda Azam University for 30 years. It's, it's more like 47. <laughs> Don't want to get my 17 years removed. But what one sees is this amazing decrease in comprehension 
in reading skills, in articulation, in math, most of all in math. And everything I'm willing to forgive, but math I'm not. <laughs> because it's really, really, really important. You know, because without math you can't do physics. You can't do engineering. And math isn't all that hard. It's not really. It's not. But it's fundamental. And uh, I, except for two universities that I've seen in Pakistan, uh, and now there are 220 or so, I, I haven't seen them all, but I know how it would be elsewhere. The standards are appalling. Why has it gone this way? Well, it's not that the government has not spent enough money. It's spent a lot, in fact, per capita. Pakistan spends about 50% um, more than India or Bangladesh. And yet, when you look at the reading skills of students, and this has been done by various uh, NGOs, you find that those are appallingly bad. Furthermore, even in terms of articulation, watch our television, and except for the anchors who know how to speak Urdu, the others don't even know how to speak Urdu. Well, you say, okay, Urdu is not our national language, fine. Well, then speak English, damn it. And nobody can speak English. English has died out in Pakistan. It doesn't exist as a language anymore. And that's very odd. And uh, by the way, there is not one single English language television channel in Pakistan. There used to be. There used to be Dawn Television and Express, but they've disappeared. Okay, so then the question is, what's going on with education? Why, in spite of putting in so much money, why, in spite of expanding the number of universities? There used to be one university in all of Pakistan in 1947, and that was Punjab University in Lahore. Today, the number of state universities is 50-plus. Number of state plus private is about 220 plus. So what is it that's really holding back education? You've you built buildings. You, you've paid teachers huge amounts now. I must say, when, when I went back from uh, the United States in 1973, I was 23 years old at that time, my pay was 700 rupees per month. Today, an ordinary, so I was a very junior lecturer, of course. Today, an ordinary lecturer makes, at the very least, something like 90,000 rupees a month. So, 709, of course, there's inflation and all that. But university salaries have gone up hugely, teacher salaries have gone up hugely, every Thing that can be done in the term, in what an economist would say needs to be done, has been done, and yet it hasn't worked. So then the question is, why has it not worked? Well, what is the goal of education? There are two kinds of education which we do not seem to understand yet. One is 
traditional education. Tradition, traditional education has a very definite goal. It makes your afterlife better. It, it conveys to the student revealed knowledge so that the path up, upstairs is, is nicer, easier. The way in which it is taught is you make people memorize. And I can, I still remember so much of what I did not understand and still do not understand and which as a Muslim I had to remember when I was in, it wasn't so much in school as at home. But now it is all in school as well, as well as home. Now, that's traditional education. What's modern education about? Modern education is about teaching you how to live in this world. It is about reading, math. I come back to math. It's so important. It teaches you about the world. It teaches you facts about the world. But even more than learning facts, it's about problem solving. How do you apply principles that you've just been told to solve new problems? And so you use logic and comprehension and you work out a logical path. And modern education, good modern education, helps you be creative. So like, like water and oil, these two types of educations don't mix. And we, in Pakistan, have failed precisely because we think that if we beat them together and beat them together, that somehow there will be a kind of education which will cater both to this world and to that world. And it hasn't worked. Education is about propaganda. Education is about preparing a mindset for obedience in Pakistan. Nobody in a school, when I say nobody, I mean 99.9%, okay, 0.01%, I'm not concerned with. No student will ask his student, no student will ask his teacher a question in class. It's about you obey. Uh, sometimes this hits so hard. A bunch of students came by the other day, a few weeks ago, and they said, Sir, we, they, they are from uh, part of my college, which is um, like the high school part, the, the equivalent of A-level part. They said, sir, we know you don't teach us, but we have heard of you, and we want to speak to somebody who, um, who we think will, will hear us. And they said, we have a, a teacher, a madam, and the madam says that uh, one divided by zero is equal to zero. So we said, uh, Madam, that can't be true. She says, it is true. I'm older than you. I am your teacher. You dare not say it is not true. They gave me so many examples. They said, our physics teacher has written down PV equals NKT. Never mind what that. PV equals NKT. 
But we went up to him and said, sir, this is, in the book it says PV divided by NKT is equal to 1. He says, look, this is not something you can understand. You do your PhD and then you can ask this question. Horrendous, horrendous. Build as many universities as you want. When you teach people to be parrots, then this is the kind of education you're going to get. How much time do I have? Ten. Oh, okay. Ah. So, change education. That education is that, that, that thing which, which confronts Pakistan's future unless changed, unless, the, unless it is understood what education is about, nothing is going to change. Third, so I said uh, number one was population, number two was education, number three is the hijacking of the political process by the establishment. By this I mean control of the media, which is now absolute. You dare not say anything against the army or the intelligence because if you do, lots of nasty things can happen to you. Uh, this is why this lady over here, Aisha Siddiqa, cannot find a job in Pakistan, cannot be seen on television in Pakistan because her views are views that the army establishment does not like. She tried for a job in my university. The vice chancellor said, I would very much like to have her. But then he got a call from the ISI saying, no way. End of that. But it's not just the media. It's using the political opposition to get rid of a government in power, an elected government in power that you do not like. That's how they got rid of Nawaz Sharif, of course. But this is also how they might get rid of Imran Khan should he not toe the line. In this process, in seeking control of this process, they have discovered another tool in their arsenal, which is that of using radicals, Islamic radicals, for particular purposes. Now, for example, to weaken Nawaz Sharif while he was still there, an unknown person by the name of Khadim Hussain Rizvi, whose name many people will recognize in the audience, came up from nowhere and established himself in, this, in Islamabad with uh, 4,000 followers, he parked himself over there on a main artery, cutting off the city, cutting off the, the, the offices of the government. It was a simple matter to get rid of them. Tear gas, you have crowd control methods. What did they want? They wanted something utterly ridiculous. They wanted, so the, the government in passing a bill had made um, a clerical error, error in the bill that was presented and when it was pointed out to them 
they quickly reversed and apologized and, and said, please forgive us. The government said, please forgive us. The law minister said, it's my, I, 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 I am speechless for lack of words. I, I, am, I am so sorry that this happened. They got the law minister dismissed. They got whatever they wanted. And plus, instead of receiving blows or tear gas, they got checks of 1,000 rupees each, handed out by the Director General of the Rangers, which is in a video that's, that's gone viral, that went viral some six months ago or so. They have also discovered that those banned organizations, such as that of the Lashkar-e-Taiba, which carried out the Mumbai attacks, and which are based in Pakistan, that these are very useful people to have because they can be used against the political opposition. And so what they did was they challenged Nawaz Sharif. There was a by-election in NA 120, and this party called the Milli Muslim League came up from nowhere and took 11% of the vote. Just, they just dropped from the skies. So this is now a tool that is being used more and more. Number four. There is deepening alienation of the population in other provinces. Alienation from the center, which is squarely Punjab-based. And the methods that have been used are exceedingly brutal. We are, uh, at the moment, uh, quite entranced by this spectacle of Jamal Khashoggi, the man who was dismembered in the Saudi consulate in Turkey. But methods used against Baloch nationalists are no less cruel. We have also seen a resistance to this from the, from, from the uh, Pashtuns, from the Pathans, in the form of the Pashtun Tahafuz movement, Pashtun um, preservation movement, because when the army moved against terrorists, and this was in uh, 2014, 15, they destroyed, they used helicopter gunships, they used aircraft, they used artillery, they wiped out large parts of many villages, entire villages in, in North Waziristan. Yeah, they certainly got a few terrorists, but they got even more innocent people. And so now these people are protesting. They're saying, remove the landmines from them, remove those check posts, etc. So there's this deepening alienation. And finally, finally, the most important thing is nuclear brinksmanship. Pakistan is a nuclear weapon power with more than 120 nuclear warheads. It has now very sophisticated delivery vehicles, and it feels very confident that it can hold off any attack from India, but not only that, that it is capable of attacking India through the use of extra-state actors without invoking an Indian response. So this is precisely what happened at the time of Kargil, which was 1999, and I think it's absolutely remarkable that here is a country which is weaker than its adversary and yet ventures into war against the adversary. You see, normally nuclear weapons are supposed to deter war. 
But to my mind, this was the first war in history, the world history, that was caused by nuclear weapons. Because we knew we had them. So General Musharraf sent his, his regular forces, but he didn't call them regular forces, he called them Mujahideen. They waited until the, the, mount, the snow in the mountains had melted. They went up to the top. There's the Indian side. And so they placed their artillery there and then they started taking off the trucks that went from Sirinagar to Leh. Well, then the Indians retaliated. They got precision artillery which took out the Pakistani artillery, then they used air power, then the thing was escalating. It escalated to the point where Nawaz Sharif, who was then Prime Minister, got very nervous. He had been duped into thinking that victory was very close. He flew to Washington, where President Clinton brought him into the Situation Room and told him, Mr. Prime Minister, do you know that your army has energized its nuclear weapons. He was shocked. He withdrew. He surrendered. Pakistan surrendered. When he came back, it was a matter of days before the coup, after which General Musharraf became president. This is something that should not happen again because the chances of things getting out of control exist. I don't say they are large. There has been learning, but has there been enough learning? One cannot say. So finally, because I need to end on a message of hope. The advertising was all about hope. <laughs> I see, I, I genuinely do see three reasons for hope. The first is that this establishment, which is so powerful, which appears so unified, which sets national priorities, has within it people who sometimes do break away. And they're not ordinary people, they're pretty powerful people. Take Nawaz Sharif. Nawaz Sharif was certainly involved in the Kargil operation. He had been told by General Musharraf that this is happening and he went along with it. Nawaz Sharif, if you look at his history, he started out as a very conservative man. He started out as a man of the establishment, put in there by General Ziaul Haq. But over time he developed his, his own thinking. He said, we can't be in perpetual confrontation with India. So in this last tenure, he said, let's trade with India, let's have people-to-people -people exchange with India, let's not think of our religious minorities as being, as being unwanted Pakistanis. And he made this incredibly brave statement in which he said that Ahmadis, these apostates, they too are citizens of Pakistan and they should be given equal rights. He went to a Hindu temple to celebrate Diwali. He broke away from that. 
Well, he paid his price. He had to pay a price for that. He's no longer prime minister. He was briefly in jail, um, but he's out now. But that tells you that there is within the establishment some thinking. And I could say the same thing about uh, Parvez Musharraf. Parvez Musharraf, the man who launched the Kargil operation, the man who said, my, my passion is to destroy India. Nevertheless, was the man who brought India and Pakistan closest to, to an understanding over Kashmir, towards a solution of Kashmir. Remarkable. So within the establishment, there are voices and that gives me hope. Secondly, the world is watching. And although Pakistan has taken the world for a ride, yet the world has not always gone, gone, has gone for the ride. So take, for example, the Federal Action, the Financial Action Task Force, FATF. FATF is a condition that Pakistan has failed to fulfill. It is now on the gray list. If it does not improve its situation, improvement meaning that unless it cuts off funding for terrorism, it will move to the blacklist. The blacklist will hurt it far more than the gray list on which we are at present. And finally, finally, I do believe that substantial sections of the Pakistani population have realized the army's game and they're not willing to play that game. So remarkably, in these elections, which were so strongly backed by Imran Khan, was so strongly backed by the army, yet there were protests against the ISI, public protests, protests before the ISI main headquarters in Islamabad. It's, now, th this is an intelligence agency that just, just mentioning the name is, it sends shudders down people's uh, spine. And yet there was that. And there was the Pakhtun Tahafuz Mahas. So the point is that I, I do believe that there is reason for hope. Well, a lot of things need to be done. But people have fighting spirit everywhere. Thank you very much.